Well, we are continuing in the the Gospel of Luke this morning. Uh, It's just an amazing privilege to be able to look at God's Word and to be able to apprehend it. I think it's a, a gift beyond measure that I'm able to study it during the week and think it through. I'm the type of person that can read over stuff, especially when I'm reading the Bible. I can read my chapter a day or two chapters a day, and right after I'm done reading it, I forget what I've read. And uh, so to have uh, the responsibility to communicate a couple of paragraphs uh, to you is a great, great gift and that I'm thankful for. Uh, So we are, again, moving along in the Gospel of Luke, and we actually, uh, according to the commentators who pay close attention to these things, are in a subtle way moving into a new section. Uh, We're still in the journey narrative. We're still in the uh, place where Jesus is moving from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He's still heading there uh, to be betrayed, uh, to be crucified, uh, to be raised from the dead. Uh, But for the next few chapters, he's going to have little interaction with the disciples, and most of his interaction is going to be with his detractors. Uh, And so, Uh, He hasn't been in the synagogue for a while, but now he's back in the synagogue, hasn't performed any miracles in a while, is now uh, performing a miracle. Uh, This is really the first entry into the synagogue uh, since chapter 9, since the travel narrative, and in some ways it's kind of a a reset uh, where we're getting back to remembering what Jesus is all about, remembering what his mission is all about. Uh, If you remember in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus' mission is established in chapter 4 after he's come back from the wilderness, from being tempted by the devil. Uh, He enters Nazareth, his hometown. He goes into the synagogue. He reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Do you remember that? And this, this is understood to be his inaugural speech. Uh, This is where he lays out what it is that God has put on him to do. And he reads from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after he rolled up the scroll and put it aside, he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it's almost like, oh my goodness, what have we just heard? What is about to happen? Jesus says, today, this day, the scripture is fulfilled fulfilled, uh, in your hearing. So, again, he shows up at a synagogue. Something very similar is going to take place. Uh, He performs this miracle in the synagogue, and then he revisits uh, an important topic, one that he covered a couple of times in the previous chapter, and that is the theme of hypocrisy. Uh, Remember at the beginning of chapter 12, he said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And at the end of the chapter, again, he made mention of hypocrisy, and here he's going to uh, expose the hypocrites. So again, this section that starts now culminates in chapter 17 uh, is one in which Jesus is dealing more with the Pharisees his detractors, then with the disciples. The the disciples are likely listening in, but they're only mentioned a couple of times. 
And then just like last week, he tells a couple of parables uh, at the end of this interaction, and that's, in a sense, his commentary. You know, he turns to the disciples, he says, this is what just happened. And, and, and parables are fascinating. We'll get to them. We won't have time to do a whole lot with them this morning. But when we get to them, I'll, I'll uh, highlight them. Uh, so what we're going to do is talk about the miracle. Uh, we're going to do a little digression on the Sabbath. We're going to come back and talk about the hypocrisy and then the way the account uh, is wrapped up. Uh, so I'm going to read this passage. Uh, listen carefully. Uh, the Bible says that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Starting in verse 10, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit, who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days to be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of God. So let's dig in. First, let's take a look at the miracle. Uh, as is common uh, in, the Gospel of Luke, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus is interacting with a woman. And uh, we are told here to behold her. I know that's a little bit of a, a Semitic phrase uh, that doesn't really mean as much as we would uh, mean if we said it. Uh, nonetheless, I think, you know, behold, take a look uh, at this woman. Uh, Luke has, all the way through his gospel, been concerned with class. Uh, from the beginning of Mary's song in chapter 1, uh, the coming of the kingdom and the preaching of the gospel is intended uh, to bring down the mighty from their thrones and to exalt those of humble estate. And so that happens. It cycles all the way through the gospel of Luke, and it often has Jesus in the presence of and ministering to women. Uh, not only is this a woman, but it is a bent woman, uh, and this for 18 years. All of these things should be underscored uh, to understand uh, the dire straits in which she finds herself. Uh, we now uh, would not use the word bent, although that is pretty colorful and gets to the point. We would say disabled, but that might even get us into trouble uh, in some circles. Uh, we used to say crippled. 
And, uh, and, and crippled is actually a, a strong word. It's an offensive word, uh, but it carries uh, the meaning. And the reason that's important is uh, the larger context. In chapter 14, if we get there, God willing, if the Lord tarries, uh, we're going to see something that is uh, really strenuous about this word and this uh, category of folks. In chapter 14, Jesus instructs those who have parties to make sure that they invite people that can't, be, can't pay them back. And in that list of people whom they should invite to their parties, he explicitly mentions the crippled. And then he tells a parable, and the parable is about a host who is spurned, and being spurned, he eventually invites in from the outside to his banquet the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And that's an important phrase. I think it's one that, that we're very familiar with if we know the Bible. Uh, but it would have resonated with those to whom he told the parable as well because there was a prohibition that was posted in the temple precincts to keep from entering the temple explicitly the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. They were not allowed into the temple precincts. They were excluded from the common fellowship of the people of Israel. And so when this woman is mentioned as one who is crippled, you know that she is one who by nature is excluded. She's one that's cut out uh, from the community. And this woman's crippling, it says, has a spiritual component. There was a woman who had had a disabling spirit uh, for 18 years. Uh, Maybe that was why the crippled weren't allowed into the temple Uh, because they might have been afflicted by a demon and for a long time. Jesus actually says at the end of the account that Satan has bound her for 18 years. And so one of the things that you see in this is that her disability is emblematic of a spiritual condition that all of us share, that her disability is emblematic, at least in this situation, of the degree to which uh, Satan can bind us. Satan can bind you. Satan can trick you. Satan can fool you. Can lure you into a trap and hold you there. Now, while those kinds of folks are usually invisible and stay out of sight, Jesus sees her. And I think this needs to be underscored in verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he then speaks to her. Um, She not only hides because of this disability, uh, but in the community she is ignored. Uh, People just don't want to acknowledge that she's there. They don't want to pay much attention to her. It's a little embarrassing. And she feels that and so makes sure that she stays out of sight. But Jesus sees her. And uh, those of you who know your Bibles will remember uh, that Hagar, uh, the servant of Abraham, newly impregnated, Uh, feels the wrath of Sarah, his wife, and flees uh, her abusive mistress, and she's met by the Lord, and the Lord tells her to go back, says, I'm going to take care of you. And the way that that's described um, in Genesis is that she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him. 
who looks after me. Uh, the Lord sees, and this is not he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, so it'd be good for goodness sake. It's not that. Uh, the Lord sees and he cares for. That's the way Hagar expressed it. I, the Lord who sees has cared for me, has taken care of me, who looks after me. And so Jesus sees her, and I think it's important that we notice that. And he doesn't go to her, but he calls her over. He doesn't go to her, but he asks her to step forward so that everyone can see. He makes her the focal point. He doesn't go into the dark corner where she's hiding, but he brings her out uh, into the open, and he frees her from her disability. He says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability, uh, ostensibly from the disabling spirit. But I think it's noteworthy, of course you do too, if you're reading it, uh, that he doesn't say you are healed from your disability, but he says you are freed from your disability. Now, you know, where's the import in that? Well, this is just what he had claimed in chapter 4, isn't it? You know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has sent me to proclaim the release from captivity of those who are oppressed, and that's exactly what he's doing here. He frees her from her disability. And, and so it's good to take note, to take a step back and take stock of the way that a relationship with Christ, being united to him by faith, always has a liberating aspect. It always got, it's got that flavor. I mean, we often talk pretty readily about the forgiveness of sins, about the imputation of Christ's righteousness, the gift of the Spirit. Uh, when one receives Christ, but we ought to remember also that a big part of a relationship with Christ is liberation. A big part is being set free. Just as the Israelites were set free from the bondage of Egypt, so the gospel sets free those who repent and believe. The Apostle Paul writes in the letter to the Galatians, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. So don't be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We sing the song. He breaks the power of canceled sin and he sets the prisoner free. And the freedom of the gospel, again, is something we always need to contemplate, be think a little bit more about. Uh, Just as the Israelites were set free in the wilderness, the freedom of the gospel is always a freedom from and a freedom to. They were freed from the Egyptians, but what were they freed to? Well, they were freed to worship the Lord in the wilderness. Uh, we kind of forget that, that that's what Moses said when he went to Pharaoh. The Lord says, let my people go that they might worship me in the wilderness. So we have freedom from the entanglements of sin, freedom from anxiety, free from our fears, and those are often not conscious to us here on Sunday morning, but they are when we go to bed at night. Uh, the gospel and the, and the Lord's care, the Lord's seeing and the Lord's taking care of frees us from our fears. It frees us from the opinions of others. It frees us from the cultural tidal wave that we're so afraid of, that we feel that we're being immersed underneath. Uh, the gospel sets us free from all of that, but it also sets us free to uh, worship the Lord with reverence and awe, in spirit and in truth. 
It's why the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, as I just mentioned, that they might worship the Lord. It's freedom to obey God when you haven't been free to do so in the past. It's free, freedom to love each other deeply from the heart. I know that some of you feel like, I just can't. I can't love this person. This person's hurt me too badly. And, and if I love him or her, he or she will hurt me again. Uh, but there is a liberating aspect to the gospel, to a relationship with Christ. And you are set free to love each other deeply from the heart, to submit to one another, all the rest. The many different places where one anothering is mentioned in the New Testament. You were set free to do that uh, in the gospel. So we sang the song recently, I think maybe last week, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. That last line is what stuck with me as I read this passage. It's a beautiful thing to see someone full of pity joined with power. And that's what Jesus is doing. He pities the woman uh, in the most uplifting and exalting and respectful way, and it's joined with power, the power to heal her. So that's the miracle. Now I want to do a little digression on the Sabbath uh, because the word uh, jumps out at us five times uh, in this passage. And, uh, and I actually bumped into a, 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 an article this week. I think it was an editorial in one of the secular publications that referred me uh, to a documentary that has been produced. Um, the Sabbath is an interesting contemporary issue. I don't know if you are, are tracking with this. Um, check out Amazon. Uh, go type in the Sabbath and watch what comes up, and you'd be surprised. There are dozens uh, of books that have been written. A fairly recent book uh, by Judith Shulovitz, uh, who is a uh, respected Jewish journalist, uh, reflects on the necessity for Sabbath in American culture, in Western culture, from her perspective. Uh, several recent books by theologians who are not evangelical, uh, that you would ordinarily not pay much attention to, that are very energetic about the practice of the Sabbath. Uh, and again, this documentary, you can look it up. I, I don't advocate it. I don't, uh, you know, it's a lot of goofy stuff in it, but there's energy being poured into uh, a consideration of whether or not a Sabbath would be a beneficial reality for any human being, regardless of religious disposition. It's a funny thing in, the, uh, in that documentary, I found out, I didn't know this, but Paramus, New Jersey, uh, in, in, the, in Bergen County, right across from New York City, uh, back in the 80s, decided, you know, they, uh, someone brought a uh, proposal to build the largest mall in America. And uh, as the city council was trying to figure this out, building this mall, they, they had blue laws uh, in, in, in Paramus. Uh, so all of the shops were closed on Sunday. And they said, would this mean that this place would be open on Sunday? And would it disrupt, you know, the way of life that we've come to understand? They put it to a public vote. And the vote came back overwhelmingly, 80%, that the, the county of Bergen County, New York, wanted to retain its blue laws. And so even now, and they show you pictures in the video of uh, an empty parking lot at Home Depot on Sunday. Even now, that county uh, uh, keeps uh, its blue laws. So all of these interests, all the things you're reading... Lament overwork, lament pinch time, 
Lament the way that we are like rats running in a wheel. Uh, Lament stress-induced illnesses. And it's kind of fun uh, to see that they're observing uh, that just as God's laws regarding theft and honesty and sexual immorality and such benefit society, uh, so might uh, the observation of the Sabbath. Now, while that's a current issue in the larger culture, uh, we Reformed Presbyterians uh, have a bit of an inside scoop on the Sabbath. No other Christian body has so deeply and thoroughly understood the Sabbath as the English Puritans who fled here in order to be able to worship freely. And and you can dig deep into this stuff and read it, and you will benefit from it. Uh, We've got a whole chapter on the Sabbath in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, Alone among the Reformed uh, confessions and catechisms is this uh, emphasis on the Sabbath. And if you haven't dug into it, I would suggest it. Uh, I found out that Bob Godfrey has just released a series of videos on Ligonier. Uh, Go read those. Or if you want something shorter, uh, in J.I. Packer's book, A Quest for Godliness, he has a chapter on the Puritan Sabbath. And it's really worth reading. In fact, that whole book, I think if it's not in chapter and verse, it has been and may well be again. Um, But that whole book on a Puritan vision for the Christian life is really worth diving into. And in that chapter on the Sabbath, Packer does a great job uh, talking about the beauty and the glory of the Sabbath, its historical context in England at least. Um, But when he's writing about the character of the fourth commandment, he quotes Matthew Henry, uh, who teaches that the Sabbath is to be seen, and here's the quote, as a privilege and a benefit and not as a task and a drudgery. And there's the rub, isn't it? There's the rub. Uh, Packer himself in his summary in that chapter on the Sabbath mentions the pitfalls of legalism and Phariseeism. Uh, Talks about legalism as being that kind of disposition toward the Sabbath. Sabbath that has a much greater concern with what you don't do than what you actually do. Uh, Much greater focus on what is forbidden than what is enjoined. And Phariseeism as using the Sabbath in order to bolster one's appearance, to look good and to judge others. Well, again, there's the rub. And I don't know how you experience the Sabbath, but I would imagine all of us have experienced both. You know, we've we've experienced the blessing and the benefit and the gift of the Sabbath. Uh, But we've also experienced the task and the drudgery that's often been laid upon us by those who would uh, uh, mandate something beyond what our conscience was uh, appealing to. Uh, But this is our weakness. This is our foible. This is my foible as much as anyone else's. We're always ready to take the glorious gift of the Sabbath and turn it into something that becomes onerous, into a law that weighs us down rather than filling us up. And, and as a, an issue that serves as a soapbox from which we can look down our noses at other people and nurture spiritual pride. Well, that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And thus, and it's very interesting to read the Gospels, the Sabbath becomes a little bit of a flashpoint in Jesus' ministry. 
It's amazing how much trouble he gets into on the Sabbath. Uh, Back in chapter 6 of Luke, there are two episodes recorded um, on the Sabbath, and and I I won't go into all of those, but the, the overwhelming thing that happens there is Jesus declares that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, that he's the one who's in charge of the Sabbath, that he's restoring, you know, proper Sabbath observance. And that's a big deal. It's such a big deal that it incurs the striking wrath of his adversaries. They are ticked off about this more than they're ticked off about just about anything else. We call this day, by biblical reference, the Lord's Day. Uh, Because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And we should remember why we call it the Lord's Day. We really should remember this. On this day, Jesus puts on display what is of primary importance, the releasing from captivity of those who come to him. That's what happens on the Sabbath. And that's why we won't forsake it. And that's why it's so important to us. And that's why we can't bear the thought of being deprived public worship on the Sabbath. Our practice should aim at no less than this release from captivity of the oppressed on the Lord's day. So, let's look at the hypocrisy. Uh, This synagogue ruler is almost comical, Uh, and he steps up, and you can't even imagine his indignation, but that's verse 14. The ruler of the synagogue, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He doesn't address Jesus, but he chides the people. He chides the rest of the folks in the synagogue, and, uh, and he quotes the law. He quotes Exodus or Deuteronomy. They both say the same thing. And Jesus responds, and it seems that he does so with some emotion. Uh, nothing steams Jesus more than to see people assert religious pride to the detriment of those who are in need. He calls them hypocrites. And he renews the charge, charges from the uh, uh, previous chapter. Uh, he also quotes the Bible, uh, but with true insight. It's the scripture that talks about the, the uh, capacity to take care of one's livestock on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus is shown over and over in the Gospel of Luke to be the one who alone has the authority and the ability rightly to interpret the Scripture. And that's what he does here. Uh, he calls the woman, and this, I want to pay attention to this, does not, um, ought not this woman, in verse 16, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Really the same word when he said, woman, you are freed from your disability. And remember, this woman was viewed by everyone else in the congregation, not everyone else, but by most and certainly by the leaders in the synagogue as one who didn't really matter, one who was of no account. Remember, she wouldn't have been let into the temple at all. And Jesus elevates her, calls her a daughter of Abraham, as he elevates others like her uh, in this gospel. She belongs to the kingdom of God. Of such is the kingdom of God comprised, 
says that about children elsewhere, doesn't he? For such is the kingdom of God. And that's what he's doing here. He clarifies the woman's condition as having a satanic basis. Satan has bound her for 18 years. And, and I, I think this is fascinating. It's a little kind of a derivation uh, or digression. I don't think it really is. But uh, his action here is not only in her favor, but it's at the very forefront of his charge. There's an obscure little verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, where John says, the reason that the Son of God appeared. You know this verse? It would be interesting if we had a little pop quiz. You know, write down the reason that you think that the Son of God appeared. Uh, what John says is something that I don't think would appear on most of our notes. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And now you understand why the demoniac said that his name was Legion. Because the legions were being mustered against this one who had come to destroy the works of the devil. I'm kind of imagining that as a Christmas Eve sermon. Might be a good one. Uh, But here Jesus is doing what he has come to do. The reason he's appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. And as he does it, this woman is set free. And now we're to the wrap-up. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, you know, I love that expression. You know, the woman glorified God, but here all of the people rejoiced at all the glorious things uh, that were done by him. Jesus' adversaries are put to shame. All the rest rejoice. But there was this, this minor chord that occurred in the back of my brain as I was reading this at one point, and I remember the way that all of those who had been rejoicing at all of the wonderful things, glorious things that had been done by him uh, turned on him on Palm Sunday. And that's kind of one of the remarkable realities. Uh, they, well, excuse me, on Palm Sunday they were all rejoicing, uh, but by the end of the week, Uh, they were shouting, crucify him. So whenever we see these wonderful things that Jesus is doing, his marvelous insight, his tender compassion, uh, we who know the Bible always see him doing this under the shadow of the cross. We know where he's heading. We know the price that is going to be born, the price that is going to be paid uh, by Jesus in order to affect the reality of destroying the works of the devil, in order to affect the reality of the liberation of the captives. And so then he turns, and again, I think this is his commentary on this interaction, and he says, therefore, that connects it to the previous, what is the kingdom of God like? It's like a grain of mustard, which is a teeny tiny seed, uh, that turns into this huge shrub, calls it a tree, but a place in which innumerable birds Uh, can find a home, and then a tiny little bit of leaven uh, that can be hid in an enormous amount of flour until it is all leavened. Uh, The parables make clear that the kingdom of God is astonishingly extravagant. And this is something I think to scratch our heads about. 
how extravagant is it? How extravagant is the kingdom of God? And what is your understanding of the nature of the kingdom of God? A friend of mine is a missionary, so to speak. Um, He actually ran into an Indian fella when he was uh, a young man. In fact, he was in graduate school, and uh, he was ABD in philosophy at Villanova. I don't know if you have heard that phrase in an academic community. ABD means everything's done but the dissertation. All he had to do was write that dissertation. He would have his doctorate from Villanova. And, uh, and he met this Indian guy and said, you know, the problem with your faith is it's way too small-minded. You know, you don't, you don't hope for the big things. He said, what would happen if the gospel ran full force through the nation of India? And uh, I think, you know, we heard recently that India is now more populous than China. And so my friend actually, you know, dropped his textbooks picked up his family and they moved to England uh, and have worked now for 20-some years in an exclusively Asian uh, community, uh, hoping that the gospel uh, will get to India. And he put a question to me one time. He said, when everything is settled, it's a thought experiment, when everything is settled, when all is said and done, which will have the larger population, heaven or hell? And that's a you know, and it just kind of struck me. And like you, my brain immediately went to narrow is the way that leads to life and broad is the path that leads to destruction. I said, of course, hell's going to be much larger. And he challenged me on that. He said, how can you view the promises of God? How can you understand the way that the kingdom of God is described and what God has done Uh, in any way that would make a a small thing out of what he's done, a relatively small thing. And so he just challenged me. I I don't know there's an answer to the question, but he challenged me to envision, and I think John Stott actually wrote this somewhere, that when all is said and done, heaven will be so much larger, so much larger, that that hell will look like an afterthought that it will be tiny in comparison. Well, that seems to be what Jesus is indicating here with these parables. The kingdom of God is astonishingly extravagant. Now, parables, you know, are always worth extended meditation. I think it's, you know, it's easy to remember, right? Jesus said, how can I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a mustard seed that grew into this immense shrub or this tree. It grew into this tree in which the birds of the air find their nest. You could, if you wanted to, take the next year and wake up every morning and say, Lord, teach me what that means. Teach me what that means. I want to understand that. You know, that same friend of mine said that he spent a year asking the Lord, what does it mean that the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great value? And how might that impact my life? How might that alter the way that I live my life. Well, that's what, that's what happens. You know, what do, what do we do with this passage? You know, we see this one who is insignificant, uh, lifted up, just the way Mary described, the poor are lifted up. Uh, we see those who are in authority, uh, put to shame. 
You know, I met with the search committee last week. Uh, I'm, I am always impressed when I meet with the search committee. Uh, I think it's a fantastic group of people, and I love the scope of it and the, the gifts that are being brought into it. But we, you know, we were just chatting about who is the church? What is Carriage Lane? Who are we as a church? How do we care for each other? What is our message? You know, what are we wanting to do? And how is that going to inform uh, the man that we call to be our next pastor? Um, well, in this passage, I think we see a model. I think we see a paradigm of the way that things can go wrong uh, in any congregation, in any synagogue. Of course, hypocrisy is in view, but I think the larger point is that a self-referential, insular religious community is in place where the leaders, and I, I don't mean our leaders here, but, but even the leaders, can't see when the promises are being fulfilled right in front of them. You know, I actually sympathize with Simon. This guy is impressed with Jesus. He says, you know, wow, this is awesome. We want to hear more from you. Come on over to the house for lunch because we want to learn from you. And a prostitute starts washing his feet and he scorns Jesus. And he can't see right in front of him. And I have to ask myself the question as a pastor. You know, would I recognize Jesus if he was right in front of me? Because Simon didn't. And a lot of those who should have known didn't know. So Jesus is always saying throughout the gospel, both come to me and be free, come to me and be set free, and make sure that you watch out against hypocrisy. He's always saying both at the same time. And it takes a lot of wisdom to know which one he's saying to you and at what time. If you are weary and heavy laden, he is saying, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. Uh, but if you are not weary and heavy laden, if you think things are going swimmingly, you know, he might be saying, watch out. Pay very close attention. This is really a great savior that we have, isn't it? 